There was a young Russian soldier whose father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I. And this young soldier was a pretty good guy. But he was, in put, he was put in charge of the treasury and his, his character was not up to the responsibility. He gambled away a large portion of the government's money, including some of his own. And word came that the czar was going to come and settle the books, that he wanted to see the ledger. Well, the young soldier knew that he was done for. And so he, he started looking at the sum total of what he owed, and then he went to the safe and he took out what paltry amount of money he had, and he sat there and he weighed the two, looking at the books and what he owed and looking at what he actually had, and he knew he didn't have a leg to stand on. And so he felt that the best course of action to take would be to kill himself. And so he got his gun, and he contemplated shooting himself, but as, as the night wore on, and as he got to thinking, he eventually fell asleep. And as was customary, the, uh, the czar came around to the barracks, and he was kind of observing and, and seeing what was going on. He looked into the window of where this young soldier was staying, because he saw a light was on. And so he, he looks at the young man sleeping there, and he sees the gun, he sees the ledger, and he puts two and two together, and he realizes that something's not right. And so he gently opens the door, he goes into the room, and he looks at that ledger, and at the very bottom of it, the young soldier had written the words, a great debt, who can pay? And he was going to wake up the man and arrest him immediately, but then he felt sympathy for him. And so he took a pen and he wrote one word under those words. A great debt, who can pay? He wrote one word under that and then left. The young man woke up, looked at the clock, realized it was after midnight, and decided to go ahead with his intention of killing himself. And so he took the gun, and just as he was raising it to his head, he looked at the ledger, and he noticed that one word that was written under his words, a great debt, who can pay, was written the word, Nicholas. That was it. The czar would pay the debt that this man owed. Even though this man had put the government in such a, a, a terrible financial crisis, Nicholas had sympathy for him. And the next day he sent a messenger with the exact amount of money to pay off that debt. Obviously the man decided not to kill himself. He was blown away by the fact that someone with such great power would have such sympathy on him and pay the debt that only he could pay. There may be some of you sitting here this morning that are in debt. In fact, most of us are, right? Whether it's a house payment, a car payment, all of us have some sort of debt. Some of us are in up to our eyeballs in debt. Maybe we have a lot of debt. There's not enough month at the end of our money. Many of us have accrued substantial debt over the years, and that's not something that we're you know, too keen on, but it's something that we have to admit. Nonetheless, there's a whole lot more outcome than there is income, right? In 2006, the Chicago Tribune reported a story about an older gentleman in Malaysia who passed away, and his son was trying to settle all of his debts. 
And one of the things that he paid off for his father was his phone bill. It, it totaled about 23 U.S. dollars. Now, the young man was living in the United States, so he was trying to coordinate tidying up all this man's you know, uh, financial debt. And, and he eventually got it all taken care of and got everything settled and lived pretty much with the feeling that everything was fine. He goes on with his life, and a few months later, he gets a bill, another bill, from the telephone company, Telecom Malaysia. This bill came with a note that said, if you don't pay within 10 days, we're going to prosecute you. You know how much the bill was for? $218 trillion. That's a substantial debt, right? Obviously a mistake, but an astronomical debt. You and I are in debt. Every single one of us. Every single one of us sitting here this morning have a debt. It's not a financial debt. It's a spiritual debt. This debt has nothing to do with a financial crisis. It's more of a moral crisis. None of us are truly debt-free, at least not from a spiritual perspective. How do I know this? Because of what Paul wrote in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Spiritually, we are debtors. And this debt is astronomical, so much so that we could never pay it off, which is why our understanding of atonement must start with a comprehension of God's wrath. We could stop right there, couldn't we? That's a sermon. We could quit right there. I could offer an invitation. You could go home and get started with your Sunday activities. But I'm not going to do that, sorry. Didn't mean to get your hopes up. Because everyone here has a debt, a spiritual debt, we must do our due diligence to comprehend this concept of atonement. Maybe you think you know something about it. Maybe you know everything about it. But it's important for us to go a little further and dissect what it means to have atonement because it's so crucial to our understanding of our standing before God, right? And this is where all the salvation words that we've been talking about through the weeks intersect with what we talked about at the beginning of the year with, <coughs> excuse me, the wrath of God. The fact that God is holy. And a holy God cannot be in the same room with wickedness and evil. Holiness and wickedness exclude one another. Holiness and wickedness are mortal enemies dedicated to one another's destruction. This puts us all in a major crisis because it means that we are all enemies of God, at least without atonement. Not only that, we are incapable of producing reconciliation on our own. In each and every one of us, there is a debt, a debt that we cannot pay. If we could only see ourselves through the eyes of a holy God, if even for like 30 seconds, we would be appalled at what we see and we would truly understand our spiritual state. But within all of this, everything I just said is true. And within all of that, God still wants us. God still wants a relationship with us. He wants us to approach him, to be in fellowship with him, but our sin makes that impossible. I have a debt that must be paid, yet I cannot make restitution. Therefore, I am resigned to spend my life, my eternity, separated from a holy God. You think about it like this. What if you owed 
the bank a pretty large amount of money. Let's say that you took out a loan and you were unable to pay it back. You got upside down somehow and you couldn't pay that money back. Most definitely, the bank would come after you. They would freeze your assets. They may take whatever it is you put up as collateral. They might repossess whatever it was that you bought with the loan. But no doubt that they're going to try to take some course of action. Maybe you file bankruptcy to protect yourself. Maybe in the end, you're able to pay it off. But even then, the bank's not going to want to do business with you anymore, are they? I mean, that bank's not going to want to have any more dealings with you, and maybe rightfully so. God doesn't work that way. That's not how God operates. God still wants to be in fellowship with sinners like you and me. God wants to pay off our debt, which is quite amazing when you consider that this debt is totally our fault. The whole reason we have this debt is because of our sin. We've offended a holy God, yet he doesn't desire separation. He desires closeness, which is why he provided a way for all of us to get out of debt. So you imagine that there's this book of your life. And every page within that book contains all of your misdeeds. Every page within this book of your life contains a rundown of all of your sins. And then you get to the last page of that book. And written at the bottom of that last page are the words, A great debt, who can pay? And under those words is one word. The word Jesus. That's it. A great debt, who can pay? I'll tell you who can. Jesus. Because here's the truth about atonement. God paid the bill. That's what atonement is. If you want to know what atonement is, a simple definition is that God paid the bill. He made restitution when you could not. He paid the bill that you could not pay. You would, turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. Some Christians hear the phrase, turn to the book of Leviticus, and they immediately shut down. What a boring book. Why would anyone want to study the book of Leviticus? What does that have to do with us today? In fact, many people start a Bible reading plan at the first of the year, and they start with Genesis, and everything's rocking along, and then they get to Leviticus, and they put the book down because it seems so boring, it seems so stale. What possible good could come out of studying the book of Leviticus? But actually, Leviticus introduces us to the concept of atonement. If you want to grasp the concept of atonement, you don't start in Hebrews. You don't start in the New Testament even. You start way back in the Old Testament in this book of law, the book of Leviticus. And here's the thing. When you start in the Old Testament, when you start with Leviticus... You begin to understand Jesus and our salvation before we ever even come to a Messiah and a cross. Look at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Why did the people in the Old Testament need atonement? Because they were sinning. And their sin was costing them. 
their sin was causing a rift between them and God. It was causing greater and greater separation. They were dying spiritually. But the beauty of Leviticus, this book of the law, is that God has a message for his people. And here is that message. You don't have to die. What a beautiful message. What a beautiful theme. Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? And if you have, have you ever read it with that undertone, with that theme in mind? The theme is this. You don't have to die. Your sins are causing greater and greater separation, but they don't have to. Your sin has caused a rift between you and God, but they don't have to. You go back to chapter uh, 16 of the book of Leviticus. Back up a little bit. We just studied this chapter not long ago. And you look at verse 29 and following. It says, This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and do not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest, who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place, shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute. To make atonement for the sons of Israel, for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. God did something about the debt that the people had. He established a day, once a year, in which the high priest would enter into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood of a perfect, unblemished animal on the mercy seat. Now, there's a whole lot more detail there, but that's the gist of it, right? But there was a problem. Aaron is the high priest, and he is not perfect. His two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were just killed because they didn't follow proper protocol. How was Aaron going to enter into the most holy of holies without being struck dead himself? Well, notice verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. In essence, God is saying, look, you can't just traipse into the most holy place and just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. That's not how this whole thing works. I set the rules, I make the rules, and you've got to do as I say. Once you've been atoned for, you can make atonement. Once you've atoned for your sins, then you can enter into the most holy place and make atonement for the sins of the people. But there's another problem here. While God accepted that sacrifice of the animal, while he accepted the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat, it was a recurring thing. It had to happen over and over again, once a year, right? It wasn't a one-time, once-and-for-all kind of thing. So you can imagine the people never could rest in a permanent state of comfort knowing that every year this had to be done again. You know, when, when my children were small, I tried my best to expose them to things that I experienced growing up. I wanted them to appreciate the things that I loved and adored while I was growing up. Whether it be sports, the music that I listened to, 
TV programs that I watched, movies that I watched. I tried to expose them to those things so that they could, they could appreciate them like I did. And you, and you know what? By and large, they didn't. They didn't like Hall and Oates, Guns N' Roses, or Chicago. They didn't appreciate the music that I listened to. They thought the TV programs that I watched were corny. They didn't like the movies. They thought that they were pedestrian. I mean, some of that you can understand. If you watch the original Clash of the Titans, which I loved when I was a kid, watch it now compared to the newer Clash of the Titans. Uh, it doesn't even hold a candle as far as the CGI and all that kind of stuff. But can you really trust the judgment of people who thought Barney and Blue's Clues was good, C good TV? I mean, I don't think you can. But I tried to expose them to things that I loved growing up and tried to get them to appreciate those things. And folks, the Holy Spirit would love nothing more than for us to appreciate the book of Leviticus. And rather than seeing it as a book of blood and guts or a book of, of detail, boring, stale, whatever you want to call it, it is there for our own comprehension, for our own appreciation, because it means everything to our salvation, believe it or not. This is where it starts. This is where we get a handle on what it means to be atoned for. There's a beautiful takeaway in the book of Leviticus, and really the entire Old Testament. And the takeaway is this, God wants to be close to us. God lived in a tent because he wanted to be close to his people, sinful people. People who weren't doing the right thing, yet God still chose them and chose to live in a tent because he wanted to be close to them. Think about that for a moment. What a beautiful theme. A holy God wanted so badly to live among his people that he decided to come to this earth and dwell in a tent. But, and this is a huge but, but God dwelling with his people presents a problem, right? Because a holy God cannot coexist with sin. We've already talked about that. So there's a problem here. And the way to get around that problem is that the high priest would offer a perfect, unblemished sacrifice. But there's another problem. The high priest is not perfect. And so he had to be atoned for as well. So you see this play out in the book of Leviticus. God established the Levitical system so that Israel could be made clean. Although they could only be made incrementally clean, it still allowed God to be in their presence. What we see in Leviticus 16 is that God paid the bill, and he paid it with blood. The blood of an animal without blemish, blood had to be shed in order for atonement to be made. The Hebrew word for atonement derived from a meaning that, that simply refers to covering. Blood was the means to cover the sins of the people. You see, atonement always costs something, always. It costs the life of this animal, it costs the person who had to provide this perfect, unblemished animal, it always cost something. Atonement required the sacrificial death of the perfect specimen. Someone or something had to pay the price. That's how atonement works. Someone or some animal has to die. Now, you're not a bunch of dummies. You look like smart people. You know where this is going, right? You know where all this is heading. You know what this is pointing to, right? It's pointing to a man. It's pointing to us. It's pointing to Jesus. The entire Bible is a story of redemption, and the Old Testament sets up the New Testament, and it points directly to the Messiah. 
the whole book of Leviticus, the Levitical system, was a shadow of a permanent solution. Aaron was the imperfect high priest, the blood of a perfect animal shed for the sins of the people, the cleansing that comes through his blood. It all points to Jesus, and it all culminates in God taking up residence with us and within us. Notice Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not been ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had con- consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That just makes sense, doesn't it? That if restitution is going to be made, if we are going to have the debt paid for us, it needs to come from a perfect high priest who offers a perfect sacrifice. And that's what happens in Jesus Christ. You have the perfect high priest who is also the perfect sacrifice. The high priest is sprinkling his own blood on the mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? It's perfection all the way around. Stay in Hebrews, go back to chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Underline, highlight, circle, do all the above that phrase, yet without sin, because those words make all the difference to you and me. It distinguishes the Levitical system from the new covenant. Jesus is the perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice. He was not a copy. He was not an archetype. He was not a shadow of what was to come. He was not symbolic. His death was not some ceremony or ritual. He was the lamb without blemish. He is the perfect high priest. Unlike Aaron or any other human high priest, Jesus didn't have to cleanse himself first. He was without blemish, the lamb that was offered. He was the high priest and the sacrifice. The Hebrew writer stated it very well in chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Here's the Reader's Digest condensed, condensed version. Someone had to die. If not you, then somebody. Someone had to die, and a permanent atonement exists Because a holy God paid the bill. God sacrificed the life of the perfect specimen so that you and I could live debt-free. That's better than any Dave Ramsey program, isn't it? A couple more passages, then we'll conclude. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Many scholars call this passage the great exchange, and here's why. I exchanged my death for his life. I exchanged my sin for his righteousness. I exchanged my condemnation for his salvation. I exchanged my failures for his success. I exchanged my defeat for his victory. The great exchange. Notice also Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
What does this mean? Well, it means while you were still in your sins, while you were still cheating on your taxes, while you were still cheating on your spouse, maybe, while you were still gossiping about your coworker, while you were still living a life in complete opposition to God, while you were still coveting and slandering and stealing and all those things, that's when God demonstrated his own love toward you. When you were shaking your fist in open defiance towards God, that's when he looked down and he said, I've got to pay that debt. He didn't wait until he thought you were good enough. He didn't wait and say, well, if they'll straighten up, I'll do something about that situation. No, it's when we were at our worst that he sent his best. There was a gentleman who lived in Chicago and was in Kentucky on business. And while he was in Kentucky, he met the love of his life. They got married, and he moved her to Chicago to live with him. And for many years, they enjoyed marital bliss. Many years. It was a great marriage. And then the unthinkable happened. She had a a major stroke. And for lack of a better word or phrase, she, she lost her mind. On her best days, she was demented. On her worst days, she was belligerent. She wailed and cried and went through fits of rage that would wake the neighbors. And the husband seriously considered checking her into a facility that could better care for her her needs. But he tried one last-ditch effort. He retired early, moved out to the suburbs, built a house, and he stayed home to take care of his wife. The doctor said, you know what might help? It says it's a long shot, but you might take her back to her roots. Take her back to Kentucky. Show her things that are familiar. And so the husband decided, we'll at least try it. So he took her back to Kentucky he showed her around the whole homestead. They, they toured the town that she grew up in and, and talked to some people that she knew growing up. But after a few days of being in her home uh, town, she, she didn't really change, didn't show any signs of, of improvement. And so they got in the car and headed back to Chicago. And they got a little ways down the road, and the man looked over and saw his wife sound asleep. She had not rested that comfortably in years. They got home and he he lifted her out of the car and he put her in bed, covered her up, and he just laid down beside her and watched her because she was so peaceful. And again, she hadn't enjoyed that kind of comfort and peace in many years. She slept so soundly. And the next morning she woke up and saw her husband lying next to her and and she just smiled and she said, you know what? I feel like that I've been on a long journey. Where have you been? And he said, sweetheart, I've been here the whole time. Where is God? Many people ask that question. Folks, I'm telling you, he's been here the whole time. He hadn't gone anywhere. Where is God? He is here. He is waiting for you to respond to his love with your love. He is waiting for you. He wants a relationship with you. You've got to understand this when it comes to our salvation. You cannot miss this point. Jesus died for what? He died for a relationship. 
The whole Bible is a story of redemption. The only way to buy you back was through the blood of the perfect sacrifice, which is why Jesus came. He came to buy you back, to purchase you. And we need to wake up to that reality if you haven't already. Do you need atonement? If so, let us help you. When it comes to salvation, God has offered this free gift, but it's only a gift if you accept it. You're going to exchange gifts in a few weeks at Christmas time. Some of those gifts you might appreciate. Some of them you might return. Some of them you might throw in a closet somewhere and never look at again. Some of them you might wrap up and give to somebody else. It's not truly a gift until you receive it and you cherish it. Are you ready to accept that gift? Are you ready to put on Christ this morning if you need to in baptism? Are you ready to study the Bible with someone to learn more about what you need to do in order to begin a daily walk with God? Or maybe you started this daily walk with God a long time ago, and yet you still feel like you've got a debt to pay. And you need prayer. Atonement is there. Don't refuse it. Accept the gift this morning. Come as we stand and as we sing.